0: We received a very thoughtful note about a conversation we had on this podcast earlier in the week about the homeless statue in Rocky River. Somebody that was debating some of the things that were said, supporting some of the things that were said. We love that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sending it in. If you have anything you want to say, I'm at sequin at cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn, and I am here with podcast regulars, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Bernowski. Good morning, everybody. Good have morning. Yeah, nothing like we had on the Friday excitement. <laughs> it's just, something goes wrong during the week. Let's begin. <laughs> How many counties have abandoned a Trump-supporting printing company that has failed to meet demand for absentee ballots? We talked a good bit about this story on the podcast yesterday, but there's a development and this one still kind of boggles the mind. Jane Cahoon, what's the latest?
1: Well, the latest is that nine of the 16 counties that contracted with this firm, it's Cleveland-based Midwest Direct, to print and mail their absentee ballots have have just taken matters into their own hands and they've switched to, to printing the ballots in-house. And uh, that would be Butler, Clinton, Defiance, Fulton, Henry, Lucas, Mahoning, Miami, and Williams counties. They've discontinued their relationship after the company um, delayed, you know, in getting these ballots printed and and mailed out to people. And um, their reasoning was that, you know, nobody could have anticipated the staggering number of requests, which, as we did say on yesterday's podcast, everybody everybody anticipated (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the, the other counties that still are, are going forward with Midwest are Cuyahoga, Lorraine Stark, Summit, Trumbull Union, and Wood. Um, but uh, Frank LaRose called this, you know, he said it's truly unfortunate and unacceptable that they overpromised and under-delivered. And um, so I, I guess they had reported being caught up with, with mailing out ballots. But, vote, you know, a lot of voters are still waiting. for for them to get through them through the mail. I
0: wonder if if any part of this decision was based on the fact that this company was flying a Trump flag and there's a little bit of conspiracy theory going on here that this company isn't just overwhelmed, but it's intentionally mucking about with the election. I mean, LaRose who we talk about often we'll talk about again has mucked up the election himself He seems like he stepped in here to try and fix this, to get people their ballots. But I wonder if the speed with which people abandoned this company had anything to do with them showing partisanship when they really shouldn't be bipartisan.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's the irony of this. And I think we've pointed this out before is, you know, we have a president who's undermined um, mail-in voting in every way. (laughs) And we have this firm that really makes a living uh, off of that.
0: Although maybe not for long. I don't know how many more contracts they'll get given this performance. Well, it'll be interesting to see if Cuyahoga sticks with it. Cuyahoga is clearly going to be the biggest of the clients they have. And uh, they so far have not abandoned them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why has the state stopped inspecting the Cuyahoga County Jail right after we hear they're mistaking releasing people again? Chris Warnowski, they've been inspecting the jail every month ever since all those people died. Why would they walk away now?
2: Well, in, keep in mind, this decision was likely made before we had two inmates accidentally get released over the weekend, but it is impeccably terrible timing for for us to, to learn that state jail inspectors have said that they are no longer going to conduct monthly inspections at the Cuyahoga County Jail, which were ordered by the governor a while ago in the wake of a historic string of deaths, uh, inmate abuse, and mismanagement that we we helped uncover uh, between 2018 and 2019. If people remember, we had eight people die in the jail, which was a, a a significant increase in jail deaths over previous years, in in a very short span of time over the over the sort of middle and end of 2018 and into the beginning of 2019. And and as a result, the governor ordered monthly inspections at the jail. John Adams, who is the director uh, of the Bureau of Adult Detention. Uh, wrote in a memo dated Monday that after 16 months of increased scrutiny, the jail is in compliance with all state standards for seven, uh, seven out of the, uh, I think it was like eight issues that they had, they had brought up. So it's, they they said that they have found significant uh, progress and improvements and from their discussions with jail administrators, they feel confident that the progress will continue.
0: Okay. Um, Now, now let's, (laughs) let's step back two years because Mm -hmm. when all those people were dying and the conditions were reprehensibly bad, the state inspectors were saying all was well in all of their inspection reports year in year out. I mean, Armin Budish's defense, when people are saying, Hey man, what's going on at the jail? He pulled out of the reports. He goes, look, I have all these inspection reports. They say we're great. So, can we have any confidence now that when the state says, "Well, they're meeting all of these specifications, they're fine," that we're not falling back to where we were two years ago, where the state just makes it up? Well,
2: I think the there were a couple of issues that were at play when that was happening. One, we found out that there really wasn't much investigating going on when when they would go into the jail. So what what they w- what the inspector would do was, you know, they would go in for their annual or semi-annual inspection, the jail warden at the time would just hand over everything that just basically says, you know, everything's tip top. They would o- look over the paperwork and then they would stamp the inspection as passed. And and that was not right. I think what what was getting overlooked, If if people need a refresher on what was happening there, I mean, they were you know inmates in crowded pods sleeping on floors they had pregnant women sleeping on the floors you were serving them rotten food
0: yeah, food um, was they gross were not,
2: they were not getting yeah. mental health assessments before they went into jail which was troublesome and they I mean you know and then you know you add on top of it a layer of just abuse case after abuse case that you know we're currently litigating and spending a ton of taxpayer money on it's it's, you know, there was a lot of troublesome stuff going on there. And you're right. It was very shocking at the time to learn that they were getting passing grades from the state. Now, you know, again, this is a thing where we have to sort of take, you know, the state government at their word. You know, they there were some delays in inspections that were going on because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but all in all, the state is saying that Things have improved now. Right.
0: But but the problem is, and we discussed this at some length yesterday, that the county has a incompetence problem that they screw up regularly. If we ever. Well, we've done it. We have put together a list of screw ups. It goes on and on and on this week. The screw up is they let two inmates go, both charged with gun crimes and then tried to hide it by refusing to talk to anybody or answering questions. So from a taxpayer standpoint. Knowing that the state goes in once a month to make sure they're doing the right thing gives you some level of confidence that they're doing the right thing because they have to. But the minute you take away that that safeguard, that safety Mm -hmm. check, will they go back into, you know, complete incompetence mode and screw up again? I mean, we're going to lose our safety check and that's a bit dangerous. Well, but it's I don't know that the plan was ever to
2: sort of be in there full time, you know, I mean, or, you know, monthly, even I, you know, I, I think that the governor sort of outlined this specifically because things were, you know, especially bad in this jail and because it was, it was impossible to hide it. And, and, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, and that's the unfortunate thing is that, you know, we do have to sort of leave the, you know, leave it in the hands of this government that has, has, you know, failed us to the degree that we got to this point to begin with
0: we do have a possibility i think of still having a safety check wasn't one of the governor's inspection ideas to have unannounced inspections in the past the inspectors always came they said hey we're coming so everybody run around and try and get things ready and when he announced the monthly inspections and some other things didn't his overhaul include that you're no longer going to get notice of when we're coming in I think so. I mean, it's it's been a while since
2: I've I've thought about that and read about that. So I I'm going to have to plead the fifth on that one because I I don't recall. But I I well, do. I hope do. So. I, what's that?
0: Let's hope so because because otherwise we have no confidence that this government will be able to run a safe jail. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why are Democrats worried about yet another decision by Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose? That will make operating the election more difficult for boards of elections. Chris Ronowski, I was surprised to see the protests about this today because it completely got past this. We didn't know LaRose had made another decision that was making the election more difficult. What is that decision? Why are Democrats worried about it?
2: Yeah. So on Tuesday, four uh, Democratic House members, including Cleveland area rep Bride Rose Sweeney, uh, wrote LaRose asking him to explain. This earlier deadline that they're concerned about. Um, Basically, their concern is that earlier ballot counting deadline set by LaRose for the November 3rd election could lead to a rush process that could be prone to errors. Uh, Last Friday, LaRose told election officials that they had until November 18th to complete their official ballot count, which is six days sooner than the deadline set by state law. Um, Officials in his office uh, say the earlier deadline will allow for more cushion should either candidate take the drastic step of requesting a recount which you know given the tightness of this race is a distinct possibility um the deadline under state law for ohio to seat its electoral college delegates is december 8th and the roses office must officially certify local results by by the 4th of december
0: so um, do we do we think this is <laughs> Do we think his motives are pure or do we think this is like some of the other stuff he's done, which is partisan kind of nonsense? I, you know,
2: I don't have any insight into Frank LaRose's brain. All right. right, So let's (laughs) get
0: you coon. Look, look, this is a guy who has (laughs) taken a lot of steps to make voting more difficult, particularly in the urban centers. And if you think about which counties are going that need the time to count the ballots and and be on top of things well let 's face it it 's the urban counties that 's where all the people are so is this another move that makes it more difficult for the boards of elections and the urban counties to do their job
1: well it 's going to be more of a challenge, and I think there was uh, one director that said you know w- we 'll get it done you know but it, but it 's going to be a challenge so i don 't know i mean i I think he just wants um as Chris said enough of a cushion to make sure that they, they get it done. And apparently the date has been changed in the past by, I think the previous secretary of state, John Husted, who's not, he ex- really but the he, 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 but extended he extended it. He didn't right. shorten it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right.
0: So Not the same thing. All right. No, so it sounds like you two guys are going to give Frank LaRosa benefit. Of the I, I need to
1: know more. The story's still kind of, well, you
0: know, but, 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 but Sweeney did
1: bring That's up right.
2: a a, a point, right. and it's you something even that we. But but we, no, but but look, Sweeney did bring up a good point. Is and and we talked about this earlier in the podcast. The this these delays resulting from this Cleveland-based company and their failure to deliver absentee ballots on time is making people nervous. And you know when when you have a delay on this end, and then you shorten. <laughs> things on the other end that, I mean, that is going to create anxiety and, you know, whether or not he's doing this on purpose, whether he's looking to, to turn this into a a legal battle that could, you know, you know, make its way up the legal chain, you know, I mean, who knows, you know, who knows it's, it's, it's less of an obvious issue than the Dropbox thing, which is like come on, like you have the authority to do this. You just
0: don't want to, I, you know, you're I, hiding behind the courts. Like this is... Jane know. remembers this, uh, but you you and Laura would not. There was an election, God, it was in the early 2000s where Cuyahoga County screwed it up royally it was before Jane Platten came in and fixed the board of elections. There was a guy named Michael Wu. And and they could not get all of the, the, the cards that contained the votes. They couldn't find them. So it took... Eight days, I think, before they actually provided their first complete count, which launches a series of steps. So so there is not not ancient history in Cuyahoga County where they would have needed that time. And what what I could see happening here, say we have some snafu that's that's ridiculous, like the the one they had with training poll workers. That, that pushes them to the limit. And then they go to Frank LaRose and they say, hey, look, we're up against it. We could really use those six days. What will he say? Oh, no, that's unfair. I have to treat you all the same. You're done. And then some votes don't get counted. I mean, having the extra time means the Cuyahoga Board of Elections has more time to do its job right. Cutting the days means it has less time. And this won't affect Licking County. It's not going to affect Jaga County. It's going to affect Franklin County, Lucas County, Cuyahoga County. And when, when you make rules that are specifically targeting the big urban counties, it raises questions about what's going on. But that's okay.
1: Give them the yeah, benefit his, of the doubt. His, I, his I'm argument not to is do that. that. If there's a recount and it forces them to miss the deadline, that's going to be really bad.
0: So then why not put out guidance saying, hey, guys, I'm worried about a recount coming up. So I'm asking you to meet an earlier deadline, but I'll work closely with you in case you have a challenge. It's not what he said. He took away six days and he, wait and see what happens. We'll see. We may be talking about this again. And I remind you that you gave him the benefit of the doubt. You're listening. <laughs> Please to don't this play week. this clip. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. How will flying out of Cleveland Hopkins International Airport during the holidays be different this year from last? And will it be cheaper? Laura Johnson, we, we're, we're starting to look at Thanksgiving and Christmas because people are wondering what to do. I think many people are going to cancel it altogether because of the surge. But if you want to travel to see your family, what, what's, what do we know?
3: So the number of daily flights from Hopkins this November will be roughly half of what it was in 2019, thanks to that giant drop in demand because of the coronavirus. There are direct flights to 29 destinations. That's down from 42 last year. But you can go anywhere you want, as long as you want to go to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm kidding. You can fly to Milwaukee or Boston or New York. But there are a lot of Florida cities on the list. There are some good news in addition though but because of that drop in demand holiday airfare in Cleveland is expected to drop um dramatically to an average of $143 round trip for Thanksgiving and 173 for Christmas so the more flexible you are the better the deal you're going to get but that's a pretty cheap flight
0: Yeah that's that I'm I'm a little bit surprised because I would think with the much reduced supply that the demand would be higher and that that would raise the prices. But maybe people are looking at what's going on with the, the recent surge in cases and the surge in hospitalizations and just saying, not going to do it or they're going to to drive. The interesting thing is we had a companion story to this that looked at a very recent military study that found that you really are going to be hard-pressed
3: yeah, to get
0: the coronavirus on a flight because of the so. way the airflow yeah. is done.
2: Was this the one that was done with Boeing?
0: It was the one done with the mannequins, and they <laughs> and they, they had them eject certain particles I mean, you, at a certain according rate. According to the study, you have to be on a uh, plane for like found 57 hours to get enough
3: uh, coronavirus particles to make you sick. Um, and I think they're assuming everyone's wearing masks, but it does show you that the air filtration system on the plane is working. Right. Um, of course, you know, that's one study to look at, but it it should make people feel a little bit better if they're going to get on a flight.
0: Okay. You're listening this week in the CLE. Say it isn't so, are we returning to McKee's Rocks? Is it actually possible (laughs) that we could see the return of former Ohio Governor John Kasich to government service? Jane Cahoon, where did this come from?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's possible, but do I think this is likely? Well, uh, that's another story. Politico reported that uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic former vice president, of course, is considering Kasich for a cabinet position if he wins the election uh, because he wants to build a bipartisan coalition. And as we know, Kasich is one of the prominent Republicans who have endorsed Biden, although I would say many in the um, Staunchly pro-Trump Ohio Republican Party leadership don't don't really consider him a Republican anymore, but that's another story. Um, In any event, Kasich, who's who's now a uh, CNN contributor, said he said on CNN recently he's really not interested in moving to Washington full time, and um, you know, (laughs) to to be honest, I think he means that mainly because. I think his ego would probably stand in the way of him taking a job like that. I mean, this is a guy who thinks he should have been president, you know. And um, he, he did kind of suggest that he he might be open to being some sort of special envoy or crisis, you know, problem solver. So so we'll see. I mean, Biden would have to win first in any well, event. Well,
0: which John Kasich would Biden want? I mean, we had the John Kasich who was— <laughs> Tea Party before there was Tea Party. We had the John Kasich that wanted to run over people with a bus because they were going to get in his way. And then at the very tail end, when he wanted to run for president, we had the touchy feely John Kasich mm-hmm. who gave that state of the state <laughs> speech where all he did was quote literature. So so which guy would would Biden be dealing with? I mean, we, we had a profile of Kasich done at the beginning of his second term where we we showed five versions of him. There must have been at least two or three more. You know, which which of the multiple personalities of John Kasich would you want in the White House?
2: This is this is Chris Wernowski. I want the one that will refuse to give up a first class fight <laughs> seat that clearly isn't his. <laughs> <If> you, <laughs>
1: Maybe we should give him a job with the FAA. Or <laughs> like that. Yeah.
0: All right, Chris, you got to explain that one for people.
2: Yeah, who don't know I don't know if, if you remember. There was a story. There was a comedian, Julie Klosner, like roasted him on Twitter because she he took her seat on an airplane and refused to get up and there was a great picture of him with it. And you can, guys, she has a great podcast. You can go listen to the whole sordid tale of it. It's, it's out there in in the ether, but, (laughs) but I, I don't know. I just, there's one of my
1: favorite stories of the year.
2: Well, and it's, it's, it's like, it's very, it's very telling. To his personality. Well,
0: especially because it became during his touchy feely era. It kind of debunked the whole touchy feely. This was the self entitled pompous John Kasich. (laughs) God help us all if he gets back into government. You know, Mike DeWine kind of came in and showed what a governor should do. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are hospitals in danger of running out of capacity because of a surge in serious coronavirus cases? Chris Warnowski, this is an acute problem. We have hospitalizations going up. We crossed 2,000 cases again on Tuesday. The the surge continues. What happens if a bunch of people get the flu and the coronavirus continues? Will the hospitals be able to handle it?
2: Well, they're saying yes so far. Like you said, the, the numbers of hospital beds occupied by patients with the coronavirus are way up in all three zones that state officials created for the pandemic. And and they're sort of keeping an eye on it as flu season nears when uh, more hospital beds will be needed. Dr. Andy Thomas, the uh, chief uh, clinical officer at Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center, uh, was on the governor's briefing yesterday. And he basically said, you know, certainly we all saw a peak in the spring and another peak in late July. And we're sort of in, heading toward another one. And, you know, in particular in zone three, which is made up of the counties around Cincinnati, Dayton, and Southwest Ohio, uh, medical centers are seeing the highest rates of hospitalization since the pandemic entered uh, the state earlier this year. Um, And hospital administrators are very concerned that the upcoming flu season, when hospitalizations normally spike in December and January are going to sort of exacerbate that problem. So, you know, if, if this, if this sort of tracks the way the nineteen eighteen pandemic did, you know, and we see a significant increase in coronavirus cases as a result of people staying inside and 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 going indoors and not being able to dine outdoors and and school and all that stuff, you know, I think it's going to drive those numbers way up. And and with flus, I, I, with the flu, I think it's just going to it's going to it's going to be. Dicey, but they're not they're not really sounding the alarms just yet. But they're they're in the
0: keeping an eye on it sort of well, mode right now. I'm pretty sure everybody who's on this podcast got a flu shot. I hope everybody listening will get the flu shot. That might help. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announced a one point three billion dollar bailout Tuesday. But this one has nothing to do with First Energy and a 60 million dollar bribery scheme. At least we hope not. What's it about, Jane (laughs) Cahoon?
1: It's very funny that you noted that that happens to be the exact amount of money involved (laughs) here, as in House Bill 6, the corrupt nuclear bailout bill. But this is something, as you said, very different. These are $1.3 billion worth of dividend checks that the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation is going to send to the state's uh, 248,000-plus employers starting this Friday, and uh, Governor Dewine said the the BWC can afford to issue these dividends because of strong investment returns on employer premiums, a declining number of workers' compensation claims, and prudent fiscal management by the BWC. So uh, they're they're really meant to help provide financial support for Ohio businesses, which, as we know, many have struggled during this coronavirus crisis. And and so he's asking them to send out this round of checks. And he said, we know they've really been hurt. Many have closed and many of them are just really just hanging on.
0: You know, what was interesting is he did not start his briefing with this. I, you, you would think that if you were announcing, sending out $1.3 billion to to largely small businesses that have been so crippled, as you say, you do that with some bigger fanfare. Hey, folks, I got some bad news to talk about later, but I want to announce something that's really good that we're trying to do to help small businesses because we know how badly they've been hurt. We're sending them $1.3 billion in checks. That's like major headline grabber, but he kind of buried it under the...
1: Well, the numbers, the coronavirus numbers are so bad that I think maybe he didn't want to be accused of trying to gloss <laughs> that over by, by starting off with the,
0: with the good news. Who would ever accuse him of such a thing? Certainly not the people on this podcast. All right. Well, that's good news for small businesses. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine worried about how people watch the first Ohio State Buckeyes game of the season Saturday? Yeah.
3: What's really funny is that DeWine's really not concerned about the 12,000 fans at Cincinnati Bengals or Cleveland Browns home games. He says those teams are doing a really good job with the coronavirus restrictions. You have to wear a mask. You have to get your temperature taken. You can't uh, sit with people you don't know. But um, same with Ohio State, because there will actually be no fans at the shoot, just family. There'll be no band. Um, So he said, quote, what we're really concerned about is all of us getting together and watching it on TV. It's the same refrain at all of these briefings that that he wants people if they're going to get together with their friends or their family anyone they do not live with to wear a mask and social distance and it's not seeming to get through when he just asks us to do that so now he's citing specific examples like this football game
0: what was interesting is is while this was going on mike norman (laughs) or Our arts and entertainment and culture editors sent a note saying, I don't think this is resonating with people. I have an acquaintance that had a 200-person wedding over the weekend, no masks, and they all got in the photo booth together. So I don't know. Mike DeWine keeps saying these things. People aren't listening. Chris Renowski, you mentioned that as you drove around one recent weekend that when football games were on, I think on a Sunday, there were driveways packed with cars where people yeah. clearly had gotten together.
2: And, you know, and you see people like just hanging out in driveways with no masks on. And and to add to it, you know, reporter Adam Freese, he he went to Geneva on the lake, I think, with his family, with his mother, like uh, uh, last week. And he said they were trying to, you know, responsibly go to a cup visit a couple of wineries. And he said, we just drove past them all because nobody's wearing masks, nobody's distance. And he's like, it, it's like, wow, it's like everything is just back to normal and it's, it's, it's like we have just sort of decided that COVID's over and, and it's, it's not. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's.
0: Wow. That's surprising. I just, I don't know anybody who's doing that. All the people I know are largely, I believe still wearing the, the masks. but but in Geneva on the lake, he said that he could not find safety. Yeah, he said it was difficult to find.
2: And I mean, I mean, but you got to think about it. I mean, what do the rules say? You know, you you go in, you sit down, you can take your mask off, and and you know, it's it's you know, I mean, granted, we have not shown that there has been a large super spreader coming out of any of these businesses, partly because we can't see any data, raw data, <laughs> and and see where <laughs> these things are coming from, but. But, you know, but at the same time, you know, you hear sort of anecdotal stuff like that and people go, wow, well, that's not the norm. And it's like, well, how do we know how, you know, it's I'm going by the reality that I see and when I drive around and and when I see packed restaurants, when I see overflow parking lot or parking in, in the grass for restaurants on Sundays during games. And you think to yourself, how on earth can they possibly be doing this in a safe way? It's it's troubling. And and really, nobody's nobody's policing it. And there's no way to police it. And there's no.
0: Now, you can't give people a ticket for not wearing a mask. I mean, it's it's just sad that the message is not resonating. It's everywhere. But there are people that just won't do it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane, for the rest of the week. It's just Laura and Jane. Chris, have a good time off. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE.